This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. I am Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover the court for Slate. It's been an eventful few days up there at One First Street in Washington, D.C., but amid all the big decisions and the non-decisions and the sort of decisions coming down from the court, you may have missed a different kind of insider Supreme Court news, that being that the Solicitor General of the United States, Donald Verrilli, has just stepped down from his job. And later on in this podcast, we're going to sit down with him on his very last day as Solicitor General to talk about his time spent arguing on behalf of the American people. But first, let's turn to at least some of the big action from the court this week. On Thursday, we got a pair of 4-4 splits in two big, big cases, United States versus Texas, the challenge to President Obama's executive actions on immigration, and also Dollar General, a case about tribal sovereignty on Choctaw lands. What that means is that the court has decided not to decide the opinion of the court below stands, but only in the jurisdiction where it sits. Perhaps the most surprising decision this week was the 4-3 decision in Fisher versus University of Texas, upholding on its second trip to the Supreme Court an affirmative action policy at UT that uses race as a factor in admissions. Now, three years ago, in a case known as Fisher 1, the court sent this same case back to the lower court in Texas with instructions to defer less to UT's claims. 
but with Elena Kagan recused and only seven justices left to decide the fate of race-based affirmative action, on Thursday of this week, the majority decided to allow for at least some consideration of race in university admissions. This is a disappointing loss for the plaintiff, Abigail Fisher, who had argued all along that the UT admissions policy discriminated against her as a white woman in denying her a space at the school. This case started eight years ago, and it's clear, at least from the majority and dissenting opinions, that the justices are also a little weary. Joining us to discuss the Fisher decision is Sherilyn Eiffel. She's president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, or LDF, and they filed an amicus brief in this litigation. Sherilyn Eiffel, welcome back to Amicus. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. And maybe before we dive too deep into Fisher, can you tell us a little bit about the brief that uh, LDF filed in this case? Yeah, well, this issue has been um, near and dear to our hearts because LDF litigated the case Sweat versus Painter in in the Supreme Court in 1950, uh, which resulted in the University of Texas being compelled to admit black students uh, to its flagship university. And so we've been involved with the University of Texas for a very long time in trying to ensure that African-American students have an opportunity to be part of that institution. We filed an amicus brief uh, in this case and in the case, the, the first iteration of Fisher, uh, on behalf of uh, the Black Students Organization at, at UT and also the Black Alumni uh, Student Organization at, at UT. And our desire in filing that brief was to, first of all, advance that history stemming from Sweat versus Painter, um, which, by the way, Justice Kennedy uh, uh, cited to Sweat versus Painter in, in, in his majority opinion today, which, which gratified us greatly, case won by, by our founder, Thurgood Marshall. Uh, and we wanted to talk about the experience of black students on the campus and the importance of diversity to them to address the issues of racial isolation and critical mass that have been controversial in this case, but also to raise the, the little uh, discussed point that racial diversity in an educational environment helps not just minority students, but helps white students. Uh, and this is something that actually LDS first advanced in Brown versus Board of Education in that landmark litigation in 1954. And uh, you've mentioned that this was Fisher 2. Fisher 1 came up to the court three years ago. Justice Anthony Kennedy uh, was part of uh, the team that sent it back under a more rigorous strict scrutiny standard. So this is the same Anthony Kennedy who uh, has never seen uh, an affirmative action program that he likes, correct? Now he has. Now he has. So were you surprised uh, after a a pretty consistent career of of disliking affirmative action programs that he pivots and votes to uh, uphold the UT program? Well, I have to say, and fortunately, there are enough people that I said this to before today's decision, so they'll know that this is not Monday morning quarterbacking, but I am not incredibly surprised. I uh, actually sat at the oral argument and came away with a very different assessment of what was happening than many other people, um, notwithstanding the very unfortunate comments of Justice Scalia, in which he suggested that perhaps... Um, uh, schools like the University of Texas were harming African-American students who he said might do better at a, I think he used the word, slower school, the Le- lesser school lesser, and on a yeah. slower track. Uh, and it was, a, it was a pretty painful moment, particularly for us. We had invited our clients um, who are students, current African-American students at the University of um, Texas, 
um, some of the most impressive young people I've ever met. We had invited them to the Supreme Court as our guests that day, and they were so excited, their first uh, time hearing oral argument in the Supreme Court, and we certainly did not feel we uh, brought them to hear that. But in any case, um, th- those comments received the most attention, and they were difficult and painful comments. But of course, Justice Scalia's vote was never in play, and so I was really focused on Justice Kennedy. And what I saw from Justice Kennedy in his questioning and his um, engagement during the oral argument was that he had no appetite uh, on this record in this case to try and do damage to Grutter um, at this moment. So did I think that the opinion would read the way it does? No, but I did not think that this was a case that would damage affirmative action overall. Sherilyn, will you you mentioned Grutter. Will you go back and give us a little history? Because Grutter was uh, Justice O'Connor's sort of attempt to figure out a way to keep affirmative action alive. And it was, uh, first of all, Justice Kennedy dissents in Grutter. But mm-hmm. second of all, so so he's flipped. But second of all, isn't the most important part of Grutter, or certainly I think it was in terms of signaling, Justice O'Connor saying, we're not going to need this forever. We just need this for 25 years and we're going to work this race thing out. So first of all, maybe help us understand what's changed since Grutter and maybe help us understand whether that rationale that O'Connor put forth, that there's a sell-by date on affirmative action, whether that disappears today. I think that was always dicey, you know, the sell-by date, and I think people overread what she said, you know. She said she couldn't imagine, you know, that we would need it beyond 25 years or that she expected we would need it for at least 25 years. I didn't think it was um, quite the way people were describing it, you know, as though you should start the clock counting and then at 25 affirmative action was over. It was a guess. It was an educated guess. And I think, you know, truthfully, I don't think it's off the table that the last eight years and the kind of fractures that we've seen in the country have suggested to us that perhaps we haven't come as far as we thought we came. And so I think that, you know, that's all in the mix. In terms of Kennedy himself and flipping on on Grutter, yes, in, in Grutter he was in the dissent. He was in the majority in parents involved, but, you know, I think that concurrence... I take that to even be more relevant in terms of where I see Justice Kennedy's thinking than the Grutter dissent. Talk for a minute about Parents Involved. Parents Involved was a a case involving K-12 education in Seattle uh, and in Louisville, and it involved a a kind of voluntary effort by those jurisdictions to um, promote diversity in their schools. And that voluntary effort was struck down by a majority of the Supreme Court. Uh, This is the case in which Chief Justice Roberts uttered his priceless advice that the only way to stop racial discrimination is to stop discriminating based on race. And Justice Kennedy, uh, in his concurrence in that case, talked about the ongoing salience of race, and he wasn't willing to throw out entirely the possibility that you could consider race in some uh, dimensions in order to get at you know, a good end to get at the issue of integration or to get at the issue of diversity. And I've held on to that decision in Parents Involved, which I think he did not have to write. He felt the need to carve out a space to breathe a little bit in recognition of the fact that we are not yet at the place where Justice O'Connor had projected one day in the future we might be. So, Sherilyn, is it fair to say, and tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, that somewhere between where Sam Alito resides and where, say, Sonia Sotomayor, who last week mm-hmm. dissented in an amazing case mm-hmm. that really mm-hmm. acknowledged Black Lives Matter and acknowledged 
severe racial disparity in policing in this country. Somewhere between those two extremes, there sits Justice Anthony Kennedy, who's both aware of racial fractures in this country, but pretty modest in his view of what the courts can do to fix it. I think that's exactly right. And one of the reasons why I'm so glad that you raised Utah versus Streif, because one of the things that's so uh, amazing about Justice Sotomayor's um, dissenting opinion in that case you know, many people talk about the fact that she, you know, cites to W.E.B. Du Bois and ta Coates and Michelle Alexander and the Ferguson Report. But, you know, the two most stunning pages of her dissent are the ones in which she describes all the things that can happen to you, you know, once you're arrested or approached to be arrested and then in the custody of police. And after each thing that can happen to you, your cheek gets swabbed and your DNA put in a database, you know, you can be strip searched. I mean, she goes through the whole litany. You know, she, she gives us the cite to the Supreme Court case that allowed that to happen. And I think that's gone too unremarked in reviews of that dissenting opinion, because basically that's, I think, the critical difference. She is describing the ways in which the Supreme Court has contributed to the problems that we see. So it isn't just about, you know, citing Black Lives Matter. It's saying, what does that that we've seen on the street all over this country for the last two years have to do with us? And what she laid out is precisely what it has to do with the Supreme Court. And in fact, even those who protest, I think, fail to fully appreciate, um, you know, the ways in which there is a connection between what the Supreme Court has said police can do, the license that they have given the state, and how it has played out in the lives of average African Americans in places like Baltimore and Ferguson and North Charleston and so forth. So yes, there, you know, that's a very wide swath that you have just painted between Justice Alito and Justice Sotomayor, um, you know, not certainly not even in the same neighborhood. But yes, I would say that Justice Kennedy is almost, the, you described it perfectly, like aware of disparity, aware of divide, and modest in what he thinks the court can do. So I think I want to ask you one last question about Fisher, Sherilyn, which is Justice Alito really goes to town on Justice mm-hmm. Kennedy in yeah. his dissent in this and, case. And the University of Texas. Right. No, he's not happy with anybody today. And um, I think one of the things he calls Kennedy out for is this, you know, squishiness of the principle that there's some magic number that signals diversity, uh, that the university can just say, trust us, we'll let you know what those ratios are. Um, And I just want to read to you a little bit of his dissent. He says, these are laudable goals, but they're not concrete or precise. They offer no limiting principle for the use of racial preference. For instance, how will a court ever be able to determine whether stereotypes have been adequately destroyed or whether cross-racial understanding has been adequately achieved? Uh, So basically, he's just saying, Justice Kennedy, you have set up this gauzy ephemeral test for when life is good again, and there is no way this can ever be judicially determined. Fair? No. No, actually, one of the things I love about Justice Kennedy's opinion is that um, essentially what he, you know, is doing is in many ways really actually reaffirming Grutter in an important way that the Fisher case had to kind of flush out, which is that if you purport to defer to the university's view that having a diverse student body is a compelling interest, then you kind of have to defer to what they mean by diversity. And that may vary from university to university and school to school. Um, you know, when, when, when University of Texas tried the top 10% plan, you know, what they discovered was that even when the numbers were negligible, 
um, when you looked in the classroom, that 90% of classrooms still had only one or no African-American students. Or when you looked within certain departments or majors, um, you didn't find Latinos or African-Americans. And so, you know, kind of what goes with the deference is kind of how the university defines it. And I think that's what's had universities feeling like they were handcuffed because in trying to execute a plan, trying to narrowly tailor a plan, increasingly the challenges that were coming at affirmative action really in some ways were coming to the point of deference. And I think what Justice Kennedy does in, the, in his opinion, in the majority opinion here, is that he carves out some breathing room for universities to be able to really make a proper assessment of what they're trying to accomplish and how best to do it. And I think that's precisely what universities have been hoping for. And I totally get for Justice Alito's worldview that that makes him feel like, oh, my God, you know, we don't have control of this thing and it will never end. But you know what? You don't have full control of this thing because that's what the deference means. So I think universities, I said, get a little bit of breathing room because at least the principle of Grutter has been reaffirmed in a sufficiently robust case that, um, you know, they don't feel that that's on the table. Because, frankly, all of these efforts, including Abigail Fisher's, were frankly not about the, the Texas plan. They were about affirmative action writ large. And so I think just having that off the table um, will provide room for universities to feel that they can be a little bit more creative, a little bit more open in their efforts to um, achieve diversity as part of their educational mission. Sherilyn Eiffel is president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And Sherilyn, as ever, it's a joy to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dahlia. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We are taping today's show on Friday, June 24th, a day that happens to mark the very last day on the job for United States Solicitor General Donald Verrilli. Verrilli has argued 37 cases in five years on behalf of the Obama administration. Many of them turned out to be truly landmark cases. He is the seventh longest serving Solicitor General in American history, and he was kind enough to swing by the Slate podcasting studio before heading out on a very well-earned vacation in an undisclosed location. Uh, Don Verrilli graduated from Yale and Columbia Law School. He clerked for Justice William Brennan, and he's argued a dozen cases before the Supreme Court before he he joined the Justice Department in 2009. So, Solicitor General Don Verrilli, welcome to Amicus. Thank you, Dahlia. I love Amicus. It, uh, it's the way I uh, figure out what's really going on in the Supreme Court. <laughs> well, I'm a devoted quite fan. Quite worrisome. I'm a devoted <laughs> fan. So I want to start by asking you to help our listeners understand what, what the Solicitor General does, because I think people know that you wear that nice frock coat and you argue cases. But but your job is actually much more involved than that. It's sometimes described as the 10th justice. Not by any real justice, of course. <laughs> no justice has said right. that. Um, so can you help talk through what the SG does and, and maybe talk a little bit about the part of your job we don't see, which is helping determine where the administration is going to land on cases? Right. Yeah, you're exactly right about that. The part that the public sees is the arguments up at the podium and the briefs that we file. But a significant part of the job, in fact, I'd say I spend more of my time 
on this part of the job, which is deciding what the position of the United States will be in the cases that we're going to uh, be participating in before the court. We've got to, to make that decision over and over again in the course of a term. You know, when, when we're not a party, we sometimes file as amicus, as friend of the court, 25, 30 times a term, sometimes more. And in each of those cases, we've got to decide what position the government's going to take. And that is the Solicitor General's job to make that decision. And quite often, there's a great deal of disagreement within the executive branch about what we should do. Some cases are pretty straightforward, but a lot of them aren't. I'll give you one example that has come up often during my tenure. The, the cases involving the question of whether U.S. courts should be open to claims of international human rights violations brought by foreign uh, persons against foreign government officials, the State Department on the one side has got a very consistent and powerful view that U.S. courts should be open to those claims because there needs to be a place in the world where they can be brought and the those human rights norms ought to be real and enforceable and we ought to be a beacon to the world. And then on the other side, you've got the Defense Department and the intelligence community saying, well, yes, but if we allow our courts to be open to suits against foreign government officials, we're not going to have a leg to stand on when, say, Nigeria or Pakistan or some other nation uh, hauls an intelligence officer or military officer into their courts and, and tries to prosecute them. And so, you know, you've got very strong conflicting views and it falls to the SG to make a judgment about how you're going to reconcile those views in any given case. Can you talk a little bit about the extent to which you have to communicate with the president on uh, issues that may be incredibly important to him? And, and I, I ask partly because you're in this unique posture where the president is a constitutional scholar in his own right. You're not dealing with somebody who doesn't know stuff. Uh, how much did that inflect on uh, the way you had to do your job? Were you debating footnotes with the president yeah, at 3 a.m.? Surprisingly little, actually. I had a great deal of independence from the president in the White House during the entirety of my five years. And I'm not sure exactly what that is, but our friend Walter Dellinger has a theory about it, and I think he's probably right. And the theory starts with the fact that I worked in the White House for a year and a half before coming over to the position of SG. And because of that, when I was nominated, there was some chatter out there that, ah, oh, they're putting a political hack in. This has never happened before. And Walter said at the time, well, no, Don, you're going to have more independence than SGs normally do because they know you over there. And I do think it's true that a huge amount of the oversight that the White House engages in with respect to the executive branches out of fear that somebody's going to do something crazy and drive the president off a cliff. So they want to get out in front of it. And although I've never spoken to anybody over there about it, I think really what happened with me was that they knew me. I'd worked closely with them for a year and a half. And, you know, if you've ever been in the West Wing, it's like a little rabbit war and everybody's crammed in there on top of each other and you're eating breakfast, lunch and dinner at the mess with people. And so you really get to know each other very well. So I think they just weren't worried. So they left me a really wide berth. You know, I don't go over there and have meetings and tell them what I'm doing. I don't send them reports, maybe a two or three cases a term where I think they might be surprised at what we're going to do. I'll call them up and give the White House counsel a heads up. And then I do a little bit of hand-holding on the big cases, you know, like healthcare. I'll call over and say, don't worry. <laughs> We've got it under control. We have the best people working on it. We're on schedule. Stay calm. So those kinds of things. There was only really one time that I had a substantive interaction with the president directly, and that was in um, 2013 when we were deciding whether to file a brief 
in the first gay marriage case, the Perry against Hollingsworth case. That was a weighty decision about whether the United States government was going to come in and say that heightened scrutiny ought to apply and some state bans on same-sex marriage ought to be unconstitutional. And that was the one time in my tenure where I thought I ought not make this decision without talking to the president. Why is that? Because it was such a weighty decision to, to, you know, it was a decision of profound consequence. It might not have been quite the the equal of the United States deciding to participate in Brown against Board of Education, but it was up there. You know, it was that kind of a decision. And in the past, presidents had been consulted about those kinds of decisions by SGs, and I, I thought it was the right thing to do. So I went over with the attorney general, and we met with the president, and uh, we ended up meeting for about an hour, and White House counsel Kathy Rumler was there too. And it, it was really one of the high points of my time in office. It was an amazing conversation. It was an hour long, and uh, um, the president wasn't um, prepared in the sense that he didn't realize we were coming over to talk about this, so he hadn't prepped for the meeting. And yet, we had this incredible conversation. He was just pulling the relevant cases out of his head and wow. distinguishing this and distinguishing that and predicting, as it turns out, accurately some of the questions that Justice Scalia was going to ask uh, at oral argument. And it was just a phenomenal conversation and you know, focused on really, in addition to all this doctrinal law professor stuff, the really big questions of whether we ought to make a judgment that this should be left to the political process or whether we ought to make a judgment that we should intervene and try to uh, establish a fundamental right here. And it was, you know, when at one point the president said, you know, everybody uh, my daughter's age has already made their minds up about this. Time is going to uh, cure this. But then eventually we kind of worked around to the position that there was some concern that it was going to end up, um, the country would end up in the way it did with respect to race and that you'd have the majority of the country finding and respecting marriage equality, but a subset of the country not, and that do we really want to have a nation divided like that? It was really an amazing discussion. At the end of it, he hadn't still hadn't made up his mind, so I had to wait a week or so to get word back about whether uh, we should file. Uh, so that that one time was just an incredible engagement, but that was the one and only time that I had a discussion like that with the president. I, I want to stay on the subject of um, marriage equality because this is the part of the show that everybody loves, but you hate if you're the one who has to hear your own voice. But we get to play clips of you back at you, and I want to talk a little bit about the marriage equality cases because certainly that's, I think, what you'll be remembered for. And it's interesting, you know, I think uh, – it's fair to say, you know, you did a, a really good job in Windsor, uh, but boy, Obergefell was you something, it seemed as though something really transcendent happened to you. I want to um, play you a little bit of you in Obergefell, and let's talk about it. The decision to leave this to the political process is going to impose enormous costs that this court thought were costs of constitutional stature in Windsor. Thousands and thousands of people are going to live out their lives and go to their deaths without their states ever recognizing the equal dignity of their relationships. Well, well you could have said the same thing 10 years ago or, or so when we had Lawrence. Haven't we learned a tremendous amount since, well, since Lawrence, just in the last 10 years? Yes, and, Your Honor, I actually think that's uh, quite a critical point that goes to the questions that Your Honor was asking earlier. I do think Lawrence was an important catalyst that has brought us to where we are today. And I think what Lawrence did was provide an assurance that gay and lesbian couples could live openly in society as free people and start families and raise families and participate fully in their communities without fear. And there were two things flow from that, I think. One is 
that has brought us to the point where we understand now, in a way even that we did not fully understand in Lawrence, that gay and lesbian people and gay and lesbian couples are full and equal members of the community. And what we once thought of as necessary and proper reasons for ostracizing and marginalizing gay people, we now understand do not justify that kind of oppression. Difference, of course. This was an amazing moment because it was, it felt as though, and I think a lot of listeners felt as though it was you saying to Justice Kennedy, we're not even where we were at Lawrence. We're in a really different place. We're at a different place than we were two years ago. And there was an extent to which you were putting into words the thing that everybody was thinking, which is we need to get Justice Kennedy from where he was just in Windsor to where he needs to be right now. Is that, was that a conscious thing or did you just in that moment say, I need to say what I need to say to tell him it's time to pull the trigger? It was a conscious thing, but it was also based on the experience of arguing Windsor and Perry two years earlier or three years earlier, whenever it was. You know, in those cases, in both of them, I stuck pretty much to doctrinal arguments. And it should be heightened scrutiny, as lawyers say, under the Equal Protection Clause, uh, and therefore you ought to strike these laws down. And, But I felt like those doctrinal arguments weren't really answering what was at stake. You know, really the questions in the case were, why should the court be doing this rather than the political process, and why should it happen now rather than sometime in the future? And I just decided, so it was a conscious choice this time around, that I was going to talk about the big questions that really were at issue and leave the doctrine on the side. And one of the big questions at issue was, why now? Uh, you know, are, are we ready for this? Is this the time to do this? And so the answer about why it was the time to do this, I, I did think Justice Kennedy's opinion in Lawrence was critical to that because it really what, what Lawrence once sense was, of course, about consensual sex being uh, something that the government can't regulate. But really, in a more fundamental sense, what it was was saying, look, gay people are normal people. They get to live normal lives. They're not criminals by virtue of the fact of being gay. And that establishing that premise changed society and that that societal change made it uh, not only appropriate but imperative to be considering the marriage issue now because if people can live openly and be equal, then you have to have a pretty strong reason to say they can't get married. So it was a, really was a plan, actually, to do that. And I guess we should say, uh, for anybody who's been living under a rock for a year, uh, you prevailed in Obergefell. And uh, that really, I think, becomes a signal case in this uh, administration. When Obergefell came down, I, I mean, I was sitting in the chamber, too, and there was just a palpable sense of relief everywhere, not just, you know, the rows of advocates who devoted their careers to this, but the folks outside the White House lit up uh, in rainbow colors. Was that a moment that you'll think back on in your career and say that was a thing that oh, I did? Oh, certainly, certainly. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't want to take credit for it. You know, there was a huge movement that led up to that, and I played a small role in the great scheme of things. But it was really a privilege to get to do it. And it was an amazing moment when the decision came down. It was an amazing thing to be there and just to feel that palpable sense of the country being different right yeah. at that moment. It was an incredible thing. Yeah. 
I want to I want to play a little audio <laughs> that's going to make you less happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is from your argument in Shelby County. Yeah. This was um, a case you lost. Uh, on the Voting Rights Act, and uh, I think the effect has been to eviscerate significant parts of the Voting Rights Act. There's a lot of talk in that case about, you know, Justice Antonin Scalia talking about racial entitlement. But I want to play for you a clip where you and John Roberts are having a colloquy uh, that I thought was very dramatic. So so let's play it and then talk about it. General, is it is it the government's submission that the citizens in the South are more racist than citizens in the North? It is not, and I do not know the answer to that, Your Honor, but I do think it was reasonable for well, which Congress. you said it is not, and you don't know the answer to it. I, 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 it's not our submission as an objective matter. I don't know the answer to that question, but what I do know is that Congress had before it evidence that there was a continuing need based on section Let's talk about that. Um, how, <laughs> what's the correct answer to the question, is it the government's submission that citizens in the South are just more racist than citizens in the North? And he had pointed out to you earlier that Massachusetts seems to be awfully racist too. What, what, what do you do when you get a question like that? What was, I guess what I'm asking is this was something you couldn't have answered. Uh, correct. There was no possible way that I could suggest that it was our submission. And so I tried to at that moment, move the conversation to what I thought was the relevant legal question, which was, who gets to decide? Does the Congress get to decide it or the court? And that the Congress did have good reasons for thinking we needed to continue with the Section 5 evaluation of electoral changes in these states, given the long history there. And that that could be a perfectly reasonable judgment for Congress to make wholly apart from any sense that one part of the country has more racists than other parts of the country do. Uh, but that was, you know, you're right, that was quite a moment. I was um, I was in a tough spot there with that question. And I guess I want to ask, just because you're here yeah. and you're about to go off to Europe, but how much are you prepared? I know you moot these and you moot these, but were you prepared for that question? Is the South just racist? Um, how much of some of these moments where you're just boxed in and there's no great answer, are you prepared for? And what percentage of your time do you spend standing up there going, uh-oh, I should yeah. have mooted this question? You know, the the moot court process in our office when we get ready, we everybody, including the SG, does two moot courts for each argument. And they're phenomenal. And they predict 90% of the questions that I get asked, uh, at least 90%. And so... In some sense, um, a question like that was one I was prepared for, but you know sometimes uh, uh, one of the justices, because they're you know they're brilliant lawyers themselves, can put the question in a particular way so that even if you've prepared to talk about the topic, the question is put in such an excruciatingly difficult way <laughs> that there's just no good way to handle it. And that was one such example. He, he you know, there was this point about, you know, the basic point there as well. This statute treats some parts of the country different from others, and what's the justification for that? Right. Well, you know, I had eight million things to say about that, but he put it in such a sharp, excruciating way that it was just very hard to handle it effectively. Okay, well, to to apologize for the PTSD of the last question, we're going to move on to what I think is considered your greatest achievement, which is winning not just one, but two cases that involved uh, the Affordable Care Act. The the first was in 2012, and then again last year in King versus Burwell. Um, That was the challenge to the subsidy provision. Now, I am not going to do what everybody has done in your exit interviews. I'm not asking you about 
Watergate, which is when you took a sip of water and America went insane. Uh, I will tell you that that was the only question I answered as a journalist was, why was he drinking water? Uh, so we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to play it. But I do want to ask you this question because uh, it's related to that. How much does the press just get it wrong when they speculate on oral argument? Because I think it's fair to say everybody said, boy, in that first Obamacare case, uh, boy, not only the water, but, you know, Verley wasn't ready. He didn't know what was going on. And, and they were absolutely wrong. How much does our getting it wrong? A, I guess I just want to ask the visceral question of how much does it matter to you? Do you care? And then I just want to ask how much it, it sort of affects the general conversation about the law, because it feels like all we talked about for a couple of days was you. Yeah. Um, I do think, I mean, just to think about that argument, you know, the, the, the beginning part of it did not go so well, but it was an hour long. And I, I think what happened is that everybody's impressions got formed in those first few minutes. And I felt like by the latter part of it, I kind of clawed my way back into the discussion. Um, but everybody's impressions were uh, set at the beginning. And wholly apart from me and, and whether I was good or bad, you know, they were there were a lot of hostile questions. Uh, and so I think there was some reason based on that to think that the law was at more risk than maybe some people thought coming in. But I, I, and, I and I do think it matters some in that, uh, and that's a good, this case is a good example of it. I think a lot of folks covering the court, a lot of the court watchers assumed going in that this was going to be a pretty easy case for the government. Right. And then all of a sudden, whoa, <laughs> there was a lot of hostility. And I think that jarring of expectations led to the way the case was covered after. And, you know, I just think that's inevitable. That's the way it's going to be. And it's fine. And, and, and I wouldn't criticize anybody for doing it. People have got to make their best calls on what they think about a case when they're covering it. But I do think the lesson there, and I guess I'm stating the obvious, that oral argument can as often send a false signal as right. an accurate signal about where the thing is going. And I do think that the instant nature of the reaction now, I, I do think it has an effect that people's instant reactions to things are valid and valuable, but they're not always right. right. And they're not always capturing the full reality. And then... You know, you watch what happens on Twitter. One thing leads to another very quickly. And in an ironic sense, even though it's such a democratic form of communication, there's a funny way in which it leads to a hardening of a conventional wisdom much more quickly than might happen if you were reflecting on it a little more. And I think so. that's really true. And I think maybe to stay on the affordable care cases, because we focused so much on that one sip of water, we forgot to talk about the fact that you did something really important, which is introduce the tax argument. And almost nobody covered it, right? It was like kind of, this turns out to be the argument that prevails with John Roberts. Let's listen to it. This is you talking about tax. And so I don't think this is a situation where you can say that Congress was avoiding any uh, uh, mention of the tax power. It would be one thing if Congress explicitly disavowed an exercise of the tax power. But given that it hasn't done so, it seems to me that it's uh, not only is it fair to read this as an exercise of the tax power, but this court has got an obligation to construe it as an exercise of the tax power if it can be upheld on that basis. Well, why didn't Congress call it a tax then? Well, you're I, telling me they thought of it as a tax, they defended it on the tax power. Why didn't they say it was a tax? 
They might have thought, Your Honor, that calling it a penalty as they did would make it more effective in accomplishing its objectives, but it is in the Internal Revenue Code. It is collected by the IRS on April 15th. I don't think so. So I wonder if you'll talk a little bit about, because this is one inside baseball thing that has been reported, that you pushed to call it a tax and that you had some blowback from people who said, don't, do not do this. This is a big mistake. Talk a little bit about the extent to which were you just prescient or were you just being kind of smart and strategic when you said, I'm going to call this a tax and let's see if we can make something stick. So this whole tax thing happened in two stages. The first stage was before I was SG. It was when I was at the White House and I was working in the council's office right when the law was enacted in March of 2010. And you remember all these lawsuits got filed like the day the law was enacted. And very quickly, the lawyers in the Justice Department pulled together a set of recommendations about how we ought to defend the law uh, as a constitutional matter. And it was the lawyers in the Justice Department who thought that it was important to include the tax power argument as part of it. And uh, I was in the counsel's office, and so it fell to me to write the memo to the president making a recommendation that we needed to do that. And there was some blowback from the political folks in two ways. One was that, you remember, it's an election year. It's the spring of 2012 that the Obama administration would be embracing the argument that the Affordable Care Act was a tax and that was going to itself be a political albatross. And then beyond that, the president had been asked some questions by George Stephanopoulos on a, a news show about whether it was a tax, and he had given an answer um, that you, you might read as him saying it wasn't a tax. I think what he said was it, it isn't a tax increase on all Americans, but fair enough. You know, you could infer that he was saying it wasn't a tax. And, you know, I made the recommendation that we needed to include this argument because it was a useful hedge or fallback. It was a narrower constitutional theory to uphold the statute that didn't have as many implications for how much federal government power there would be as the broader Commerce Clause theory. And, you know, the president just approved it, period. So that, you know, that initial thing happened immediately. I, I don't know what went through the president's mind, but we sent the memo in one night and the next morning the approved box was checked. And so, you know, I, he didn't seem to lose a lot of sleep over making the judgment that we would include the argument. Typical of the president, I think, that he was making the calculation about what was right, not what was politically expedient right. and what was smart. So that was sort of stage one. Stage two was when I got to the uh, SG's office. We had included that argument all along. But the more I worked on the cases as we were shaping them up for the Supreme Court, the better that argument seemed to me. The strong, there was one, some arguments you work on them, the more you work on them, the worse they seem. Some arguments you work on them, the more you work on them, the better they seem. And this one was in the second category. And then that, my instinct about that was bolstered by an opinion that Judge Brett Kavanaugh from the D.C. Circuit issued some months before the Supreme Court case. And he's a brilliant, brilliant judge and one of the most distinguished conservative jurists in the country. And he wrote an opinion where he didn't embrace the idea that it was a constitutional exercise of the tax power, but he wrote an opinion and said, boy, it sure looks like a tax. And well, I thought, well, geez, if Brett Kavanaugh is looking at it that way, that tells me something. And so my own instincts and then that sort of validation of them made me think we got to really put a lot more energy into this. And so we pushed it pretty hard. And and I did think at oral argument, too, that I was just bound and determined to talk about it. And so about – it was an hour-long argument, unusually long argument, hour-long per side – 
about 40 or 45 minutes in, I started saying, I want to talk about the tax power right. now. And I couldn't get off the Commerce Clause for a while. And then eventually Justice Sotomayor said, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was her, she said, let's talk, you want to talk about the tax power. And I got like a 10-minute run on the yeah. tax power. Um, and boy, was I glad I did because I was able to get across this idea that, yes, this is a narrower ground on which you can affirm it. And and I think everybody agrees. I think even the, the dissenting justices ultimately in the case agreed that if Congress had expressly called it a tax, it would be indisputably constitutional. So really the fight was just about whether there was a magic word there or not. And I thought if I could frame the thing up in those terms, that we'd have a pretty good shot because it would be a little weird to say, yes, Congress can do it if it uses the magic words, but because Congress didn't use the magic words, they can't do it. That's a different kind of question from the commerce power question of whether this is just going too far, which is a much harder question to answer, I think. Did you feel at that moment, hey, I have the chief, or was that no, no way? No, no way. No, no. I thought it was a, like a jump ball kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it could go either way, but I didn't think I had that one in the back, not by any means, no. And I think I just want to ask, and, and you can tell me that you can't answer. I know uh, this week was a big win on affirmative action in Fisher. It was certainly not a win uh, in United States versus Texas. It was a tie. Um, can you talk at all about both what that means going forward, but but also President Obama framed this as a, a real referendum on what it means to have eight justices. Does that get through? Is this a way of concretizing for people that having eight justices is a problem? Well, it may be. You know, it may be. We'll see how the public reacts to it. But the fact that you have a policy of such consequence directly affecting millions of people and you have a legal question of great consequence about the scope of the president's authority to act in implementing the immigration laws in this way and you have a one-line decision from the court affirming by an equally divided court is its inevitable consequence of where we are. And I'm certainly not criticizing the court for issuing that ruling. It is what it is. It's their practice to, when it's a tie, they just issue a one-line ruling and there are reasons for that. But when there's something this important at stake, it's not a great thing for the country that it gets resolved, at least resolved provisionally in the, in the way that it did. I want to ask you a last question about tone, because this is something that everybody has said about you. And I, I think they say it almost disparagingly, is that you're such a gentleman. You're a lawyer's <laughs> lawyer. Why don't you shout more? Um, and certainly, I think at the outset, there was really a lot of criticism of how sort of mild-mannered Clark Kent you were. And I, I think um, particularly on the left, progressives wanted more bombast and, and more, I, I almost want to say Scalia-like, you know, shaking of fists. I, I've read you quoted saying you felt your job was always to take the temperature down in that chamber. But can, can you talk a little bit? I know you, you tweaked your tone a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about partly just being in this moment where sharp, sharp dissents at the court, some eye rolling at the court. This is a very high intensity bunch of justices. Your decision was always to modulate that by being unbelievably calm. Is that fair? Yeah, and, and I've actually thought a lot about this, and there are three kind of conscious reasons for it. One is that 
I'm not a private litigant. I'm representing the United States, and, and I'm representing the United States, and my office is representing the United States day after day in front of the court, and I think it's the right thing to do to carry that out with some dignity and some respect for the process and respect for the institution. And so th that led me to just you know, move the dial a little bit uh, in, in the direction of, of uh, calmness. The second thing I thought was that as a pragmatic matter, it was the sensible way to do this because, you know, without uh, trying to pigeonhole anybody, I think it is fair to say that in the main, I'm arguing for progressive positions on behalf of a progressive administration in front of a court who, before Justice Scalia's death, had a conservative majority that, that was, was quite conservative, frankly, and that my job was always to pull a vote over uh, from somebody who was likely to be, at least at the outset, disinclined to agree with me on some things, or at least disinclined to agree with the policy that I was defending. Maybe they would agree with the legal principles, but not the policy. And that it wasn't going to do me a lot of good to give a stirring speech to try to move that fifth vote over. And a good example of that is Shelby County, where I do think there was a lot of concern from the left that I didn't go up there and you know give a ringing speech about the Edmund Pennant Bridge, and you know I, I would uh, you know part of me of course wanted to do that, talk about the Edmund Pennant Bridge, and the and the iconic nature of the statute and its place in our history, but I thought there was zero chance that that was going to help me get the fifth vote I needed uh, in the case, and if anything would be counterproductive uh, because I'd be kind of sending a, a message that. That, that implied something about the people who were inclined to vote against me. And it just didn't seem as a pragmatic matter, not the right way to do it. And then the third reason was that, and this I didn't, the first two I sort of had from the outset in my mind that those were reasons to stick on. The third one I came to appreciate over time, which is that if my baseline is calm, then the moments when I reach for something are going to have more of an impact because they're going to stand out. Um, in that I'll you know, depart upward from my calm baseline. And the, just the fact that I'm doing it signals that I'm saying something that I think is really important. And the moments I think about, the, when I think about that, are the, the very end of the third day in healthcare and the Obergefell, the, the, especially the closing part of Obergefell. And there are several other times like that where I felt like, okay, I'm going into this other mode. And you know, one thing I'm um, very uh, grateful about is that the justices actually respected that. Right. Almost always when I went into that mode, they stopped interrupting and listened. And so I, I know, I, who knows whether they, the, those moments made any difference in the outcomes of the decisions. But I felt like, you know, if I'd been up at that level all the time, then it, it was just gonna be, you know, one more sentence coming out of my mouth. But if it was different, that it was going to um, hopefully have more of an impact. As I said, that wasn't entirely conscious at the beginning, but I did after a couple of years, I realized that this was actually true, that this gave me the ability to go to a different place and hopefully have a stronger impact. It's funny. I've been thinking so much in this last couple of months about how grateful I am to cover the court because the constraints of calm and civility are really palpable when you look across the street and that 
you know, I, I feel like the discourse has become so overheated that, you know, we talk about everything in the exact tone that seems to sort of preclude reason and to preclude the possibility of agreement. And more and more, I, I sort of I'm responding to what you're saying by just thinking this is such a moment when it feels that the whole country could learn from the way we speak to each other in the court, you know, and understanding that we are repeat players, that we have reputations, that we, you know, lying is not generally a good idea, uh, and that, you know, the way we treat each other in that building stands for the proposition that there can be reason and there can be compromise. And it just feels as though it's kind of dissipated in so much of political discourse. I completely agree with that. And one thing I've experienced and I feel really grateful for now that I'm uh, on my way out is that I felt that the justices gave that back to me. I, I really did. You know, of course, you could have some sharp exchanges. That's the nature of the thing. And that's fine. But really, in the main, I felt like the tone there was from them was, yeah, we, we may not agree with you, but we're going to have a discussion about this. And and they, you know, the, the, and it didn't, you know, there wasn't, I, I might have, in a case where I prevailed, you know, the next time I'm up there, there's no sort of ill will hanging over from the prior case. You know, we had the same discussion again. When uh, you announced that you were stepping down, President Obama said this. Thanks to his efforts, 20 million more Americans now know the security of quality, affordable health care. We're combating discrimination so that more women and minorities can own their piece of the American dream. We've reaffirmed our commitment to ensuring that immigrants are treated fairly. And our children will now grow up in a country where everyone has the freedom to marry the person they love. You have really presided over uh, an amazing, amazing time as Solicitor General. And I think I just want to say thank you uh, for your service. And I hope that you go off and do whatever the next fantastic thing is. I We thank you. Well, I feel so blessed to have had the chance to do this job in this moment in our history. It's been an incredible thing. So thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Don Verrilli was the Solicitor General of the United States. He steps down today, June 24th. Don Verrilli, thank you so much for joining us on Amicus. Thank you. It's great. that is going to do it for another rip-roaring late June edition of End of Term Amicus. As always, we look forward to hearing your thoughts about what you heard today. You can share your thoughts with us at amicus at slate.com. We really love your letters and we always love your ideas for future shows. Remember, you can always go back and listen to any and all of the old Amicus episodes in which we first discussed the cases that came down this week. All of them can be found at slate.com slash amicus. And if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll also find transcripts of all our shows there. If you're not, you can sign up for a free trial membership at slate.com slash amicus plus. And when you do, you should just know that transcripts sometimes take a few days to post. The producer of Amicus is Tony Field, who is celebrating his birthday today. Special thanks also go out to Afim Shapiro, who engineered our interviews this week. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, and the chief content officer of Panoply is Andy Bowers. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. Be sure to look for us in your feed next week, same time, same place, for our very last show of the 2015 Supreme Court term. Hear whatever you need to know about the last round of the big decisions and what it all means right here on Amicus. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.